Hello again, friends, and welcome on into episode 166 of the SCO Show. Proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield here in the big chair for today, Monday, January 18th, 2021. We've got a huge show, a lot of stuff to cover today. We're going to talk some major football end-of-season awards. I'm going to take you through part of my Pro Football Writers Association ballot, as I want to do, for reasons that will become clear in a moment. We're going to preview the AFC-NFC Championships games. Those games are now set. We're going to start the first segment of the show off with a recap of the weekend's action. We had great game Saturday, great game Sunday, so I'm going to walk you through some of my observations from those. But we have to start with Deshaun Watson, which we will do after your usual cavalcade of announcements. Please do follow on on the Twitter machine at Mark Schofield. Check out the work. Matt Waldeman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, not one, not two, but three SB Nation websites. Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, Pat's Pulpit. And of course, USA Today, Touchdown Wire, part of the Wire Network over at USA Today. Myself, Doug Farrar, Barry Werner, uh, covering the NFL from all angles. You saw some pieces from me over the weekend. You can expect to see more of those as we get ready for Championship Sunday. Now, I said we were going to talk playoffs, and we will do that in a moment, but... As was the case last Sunday, football fans woke up to the news on Sunday morning that, yes, Deshaun Watson really seems to be done with the Houston Texans. He's going to force a move out of that organization. Things seem to have come to a head. Sports Illustrated has some incredible reporting on Jack Easterbay, their character coach, formerly with the New England Patriots, um, and it does seem like that situation is spiraling out of control. Dan Orlovsky and others on Twitter on Sunday afternoon talking about how they've talked to people close to the organization. And it sounds, and actually it is worse than it is being made to sound in the media, i.e. you think it's bad what you're hearing now, just wait till the truth comes out. So it does seem like this is a situation spiraling out of control. What does that mean for the Patriots? Well... Probably not a lot, as I talked about when we dove into the Deshaun Watson rumors last Sunday. Yes, the the list of teams that won't want to call about the availability or potential availability of Deshaun Watson is probably small enough to count on Baby Yoda's hand. But at the same time, there will be teams that will have better packages to put together to make a move for Deshaun Watson. Multiple first-round picks this year, multiple first-round picks down the road, potentially a young quarterback of their own, say Sam Darnold, to Tungo Valoa. Would I love to see Deshaun Watson in a Patriots uniform? Absolutely. Do I think there is a price too high to pay in terms of acquiring him? No, this is a franchise quarterback, a young franchise quarterback, an elite quarterback. They don't just come around every season or so. If you get the opportunity to get one, you pay the price. But teams have more to offer than New England. And so we'll keep watching this, but I do think that the Patriots are in a tough situation with respect to acquiring Deshaun Watson. So let's now talk playoffs. Two games Saturday, two games Sunday, and some great football to talk about. We'll go in chronological order here, kicking off with Rams at Packers. Obviously, the matchup people wanted to see. 
was that Packers offense against that Rams defense. Brandon Staley crafted a great defense. It was a good defense last year. It's elite this year. Part of it was the ability to start most plays with two high looks, dare you to run the ball, and either spit into a single high look to stop the run, or just, you know, you've got Aaron Donald, so you can still stop the run. People wanted to see how that matchup was going to play out against Matt LaFleur and an offense he's crafted very much in Sean McVay's mold. Outside zone, boot action, now you've got an elite quarterback to run it. And I think we saw our answer. And perhaps we saw our answer started in the second half. Even though the Packers had a lead going into the halftime break, I think you really saw the impact of what that offense does on two plays. First was the Aaron Jones 60-yard run to open the third quarter, which light box from the Rams, what you expect, what we've seen from them. And they were just able to handle it up front. If they're going to play light, LaFleur was more than happy to run the football. Had a huge play there. And then what does that start doing? Once you start getting that ground game going, you get safeties thinking about coming down the hill and run support situations. You get the play-action shot play to Lazard over the top for the huge touchdown when it was a close game. But boom, in the blink of an eye, Packers go up again big. And I think that was sort of the sequence of events not exactly a sequence because they were distanced somewhat, third quarter, fourth quarter, but I think those two plays kind of told the story. For the Rams' offense, look, does Jared Goff look to you like the quarterback Sean McVay wants running his offense at this point? I don't think so. You saw a lot of Wildcat stuff. They started John Wolford a week ago. Um, Goff threw some dimes early in the game, some routes in the middle of the field, but it certainly seems as a neutral observer and somebody that had Jared Goff as QB1, that draft class, that McVay's looking elsewhere as soon as he can. Then you have the night game. Ravens at Bills. Not a lot of offense to talk about. I, I think two takeaways. Well, three t- takeaways, really. Three moments to discuss. One, I could tell early on that Lamar was going to have trouble. The Bills were doing zone stuff. Keeping eyes on him. They were forcing him to get to his third and fourth read on a play. They were taking away where he wanted to go with the football. And early in that game, it didn't look like he wanted to pull the trigger on throws. Now, on many examples, there just wasn't anywhere to go with the ball. Watching it live, watching the All-22 on Sunday morning. There weren't a lot of options for him. But you did have the sort of pick six moment, which was a critical turning point in that game. Obviously, it's another zone coverage. He made one of the cardinal mistakes a quarterback can make. He made the mistake of assuming. He assumed that Johnson was going to stay down in the flat because they had an over-curl-curl concept from trips. They dropped it sort of a red zone, gold, green two. They call it green two, which is sort of your end zone, red zone variation of Tampa two. And he's trying to throw his tight end, who's the number three receiver, against the leverage middle runner in the middle of the field. And it would would have been the right read and would have been a touchdown if you didn't get the route jumped. Lamar assumed that Johnson wasn't going to be there. He was. Pick six. You know, not a lot of talk to talk about from Buffalo's offensive perspective. You had the floater, the 32 play to Dawson Knox, which was huge. Um, and then a couple of plays later on second and 16, you had a deep out route to Diggs. I did a video breakdown on Twitter, which you can find again at Mark Schofield, uh, breaking down those two plays. You know, but really, I think the story was what 
Leslie Frazier and company did against Lamar Jackson, Greg Roman, and that Buffalo, I mean that Baltimore Ravens offense. Now we go to the Sunday's games, kicking things off with the Browns at the Chiefs. And I think there's only one place to start, and that was the decision to run Patrick Mahomes on a speed option play in a short yardage situation, which led to Mahomes getting knocked out of the game. You know, that really sort of opened the door for the Browns to perhaps pull off the upset. Chad Hetty had a great run at the end, sort of get them close where they could ice the game with a fourth down throw from Hetty uh, to Tyreek Hill when everybody in the world expecting them not to snap the ball. But Andy Reid's going to do what Andy Reid does. He's going to keep that pedal pushed to the floorboard, and he did it with the Mahomes call. He did it on the fourth down situation. And, you know, I, I think from a Kansas City perspective, as you start thinking about an AFC championship game, these are two different teams. And we're going to talk about the AFC championship game in the second segment, but these are two different teams than the teams that met back in week six, which is a game that the Kansas City Chiefs won. Then, of course, we had the final game of the weekend, a match of two of the game's greats, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, who was bought to take on Aaron Rodgers in the NFC Championship game next week at Lambeau Field on the line. And I will say this bit, this game was a bit tough to watch in a sense because Drew Brees, you know, there were the reports prior to the game that this was going to be his final season. You know, if indeed this was a loss by New Orleans, that it would be his final game. And you could tell that the arm just was not there, whether it was impact of the rib fractures, age, whatever. Brees just didn't have it. He couldn't push the ball downfield. The Saints' only sort of big vertical passing play was a trick play with Jameis Winston in the game to take a deep shot to Traquan Smith. You know, four turnovers from the Saints in this one. It, it was a tough watch. But on the flip side, look, Tom Brady back to another championship game. And they found a way down the stretch in the season, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, to be more effective on offense. You know, thrown out of 12 personnel, play action out of 12 personnel. Then a lot of horizontal stuff. They were running mesh. They were running crossers. You know, your typical Bruce Arian stuff. And now Tom Brady has a shot at Super Bowl ring number seven. You know, we'll talk about that, you know, Packers, Bucks game in the next segment. But just, uh, you know, hats off to Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. They, they found a way after their bye week to re- Redo their offense in a sense. It worked. It clicked. And now Brady has a shot at another ring, which is just incredible to think about. And so we'll talk about that game. We'll talk about, obviously, Bill's Chiefs. That's ahead here in episode 166 of the Sco Show. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 166 of the Sco Show. And before diving into my initial thoughts on the two championship games set for next Sunday. I did want to give a quick shout-out. Got a very nice email from Russell Easterbrooks. Great to hear from you, Russell. Um, I'm going to get you that invite to the Slack channel as soon as possible. Very excited to see, you know, your draft takes, roster evaluation takes, and all that stuff in the Slack channel as well as the emails, which I get from you, which are always appreciated, always lovely to hear from you. Um, So shout-out to Russell for being such a loyal listener over the years. Let's start it off with the AFC. Bills, Chiefs, it was the game that I think a lot of people were hoping to see. Those two teams, at least down the stretch, looked like the two best teams on that side of the 
you know, the NFL coin. I think my two initial thoughts are this. A, as I alluded to in the previous segment, these are two different teams right now. You know, in the Mahomes injuries concussion situation is a part of that equation. But I think a bigger part of that is that this Buffalo Bills team is a much better team than it was back in week six. That was when they were in the midst of a stretch regarding Josh Allen, which we're going to talk about, but their defense wasn't as good as it is right now. I think it's a much better defense than it was back earlier in the year. I think Tredavious White being completely healthy is a huge factor because I think there's sort of a you know butterfly effect of him now being that standout lockdown corner type one player um, that makes all of your other matchup and coverage decisions that much easier. Um, so these are two... Much different teams than squared off back in week six. So that's one part. The other part is this. Josh Allen's a much better quarterback than he was back then because Allen was sort of in the midst of a tough stretch of games. When these teams met back in week six, it was a tough stretch of games that really sort of tested him from a mental decision-making standpoint against zone Coverage. I pulled the numbers courtesy of Sports Info Solutions. His ability to execute against zone coverage was a big question mark in a stretch of the season that included their loss to Tennessee, this game against the Kansas City Chiefs, a blowout win over the Jets, and then their narrow win against the Patriots. During that four game stretch, Against zone coverage, which Sports Info Solutions is defined as, well, I defined using their parameters, cover two, cover three, cover four, cover six, and Tampa two. Allen completed 50 passes on 78 attempts for 580 yards, one touchdown, four interceptions, and an NFL passer rating of a not-so-nice 69.4. And that includes what he did against the Jets, a game he threw over 300 yards in, Stripping out that game, so you now you've got three games against zone coverage, Titans, Chiefs, Pats won. 35 of 42 for 332 yards, one touchdown, four interceptions, and an NFL passer rating of 67.96, 68, if you want to round up and be nice. That's not great. He was struggling against zone coverage in that stretch of the season. Allen's season had like a cyclical nature to it. Early in the year, he was facing a lot of man coverage. He was tearing that up. Teams played more zone against him. Tennessee, Kansas City, you know, the Jets, Patriots back in that first meeting. He struggled a bit against it. Then he started to figure it out. How do we know that? Later in the season, started with the 49ers in Week 13 and concluded with the Patriots in Week 16. There was a Steelers game and a Denver game, I believe, in there. Here is what he did against zone coverage during that four-game stretch. 52 of 74 for 617 yards, four touchdowns, one interception, and an NFL passer in at a 107.77. So he started to figure out zone coverage. So that's one reason why these are different teams. This is a different game. And here's something else. In a piece that's already up over a touchdown wire, um, I, I looked at Allen's game against Kansas City. And he had opportunities to hit on throws against man coverage, and he just missed them. Early in the game, there was a miss on what could have been a touchdown to Stephon Diggs on a deep over route. 
He missed it against man coverage. Two plays later, he missed a chance to not just convert a third down situation, but perhaps get a huge gain when they went cover zero against him. He had an opportunity to hit Devin Singletary on a flat route early in the down. He doesn't throw it right away. Then he sort of flushes himself and then misses Singletary with the pass. And then later in the game, third down situation, he had Beasley on an underneath crosser as part of a shallow cross concept. He was wide open. He had a step on the the corner. He was well ahead of the linebacker who was that underneath low hole defender. And he missed it by inches. He misses on maybe just one of those throws and it's a different game. The first two came on a drive where they had to settle for three. You get a touchdown on that drive, it might be a completely different game. You you convert that third down, that third example, it might be a completely different game. And so... These are two different teams. And even though this was during a stretch when Allen was struggling, there were still some opportunities that they just missed on. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of time to analyze this game, which I'll be doing all week long over at USA Today Touchdown Wire and later on this week. But just wanted to throw that out there as we start thinking about the AFC Championship game between the Bills and the Chiefs. And on the NFC side, we get the matchup, at least the matchup of quarterbacks that I think A lot of people may have looked forward to when Tom Brady announced that he was joining the NFC. He was going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a Rodgers-Brady championship game. You know, we may never get a Rodgers-Brady Super Bowl in all likelihood. But we'll at least get a Brady-Rodgers championship game next Sunday at Lambeau Field. Chance of snow, cold weather. Where my mind goes immediately in this game, beyond the two quarterbacks and the legends that they are, the living legends that these two men are. Earlier in the season, and perhaps the only time this year, I say there were, I talked about this with Doug Farrar on our Touchdown Wire matchup podcast last week. There were really two moments this year where Aaron Rodgers seemed confused. There was a game, you know, a Saturday nighter late in the season against the Carolina Panthers where Phil Snow's defense basically told got Rodgers confused. He said after the game, I was confused. I didn't know what I was seeing out there. Probably because in the weeks leading up to that and then, believe it or not, in the weeks after that, Carolina was just like a spot drop cover three team. But instead, they were showing him different looks, different stuff up front, different stuff in the secondary. And Rodgers couldn't quite figure it out. The other time this year that Rodgers looked that confused was early in the season when they lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Todd Bowles pitched basically the defensive equivalent of a perfect game. He looked fantastic in that one. And what they did up front was a lot of pressure looks, exotic looks, exotic packages, sub-packages, some 115, some 146, a lot of different things. And you can bet that that is going to be a huge part of the game plan going forward next Sunday. And a lot of people are going to say, well, the weather, Brady's arm, maybe it won't hold up. I think Brady's going to be just fine as a lot of he doesn't throw those speed outs. I think obviously because of what I was just talking about, your mind goes to first when the Packers have the ball, how is Todd Bowles going to defend that offense? What are you going to do with Devontae Adams? You know, Levante David, Devin White are a pair of incredible linebackers. 
a pair of just absolutely incredible linebackers. And they could have an impact like they did Sunday against Drew Brees and the Saints when it's basically a horizontal passing game. Brees can't push the ball downfield. That becomes different against Aaron Rodgers. Obviously, you know, Aaron Rodgers is going to push the ball downfield. He's going to find some vertical shot play. So then where do you go in the secondary if you're Todd Bowles? What matchups are you going to do? What are you going to do with Devontae Adams? You know, Carlton Davis is a good corner. You might see a lot of him on Devontae Adams. You might see Carlton Davis with help on Devontae Adams. So it's going to be an interesting game. Two really interesting games. Um, Sitting here right now, I would give the edge to the home teams, but not by much. Obviously a lot in the air with Mahomes and his concussion. But we've got a lot of football to talk about. Leading up to these two games and a lot of analysis and film watching yet to do. So it'll be, it will be a fun week here at the SCO Show. Up next, we're going to talk some award stuff and more. That is ahead on episode 166 of the SCO Show. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 166 of the SCO Show. And we're going to talk some awards now. Getting to the end of the season, you're going to hear... Lots of discussion about MVPs and comeback players of the year and most improved and things like this. And as a relatively newly minted member of the Pro Football Writers Association of America, I now have the opportunity to vote on end-of-season awards that are given out by the Pro Football Writers Association of America, which I got to say is kind of cool. And it's something that you know, I'm not going to kind of sit here and say it's the most important thing in the world, but I do sort of take it seriously. And one of the things that I've always respected about people that get to do things like this is when they sort of show their work, when they either release their ballot or talk about some of the decisions that they made, particularly baseball. I know it's Hall of Fame voting season in baseball, and you're seeing a lot of Hall of Fame ballots on the timeline because those are made public. Um I always have respect for people. I know Aaron Schatz over at Football Outsiders recently had his, made his awards known, his voting known, um, talked about the reason for some of the picks, and there's blowback that comes with it. But, you know, I think if you have a chance to, to make some of these decisions or at least submit a ballot, it's nice when people sort of show their reason. So I want to talk about the major ones. Um, there will be others that come out, like all AFC, all NFC, all rookie and things like that. Uh, but I really just sort of want to start on, you know, the biggies. The ones that probably get talked about the most. And we start at the bottom. With assistant coach of the year. There were a couple of different options here. Um, Bill Callahan, the offensive line coach for the Cleveland Browns, I think has done a tremendous job. That is a great unit. I look at Josh Boyer and what he's done with that Dolphins defense. I think that's a very good unit as well. But I've been very impressed by Brandon Staley and what he's done as the defensive coordinator of the Los Angeles Rams. And I know, look, they just lost this weekend, and that opened the door to a lot of, oh, they're they're really not that good. Um, But I think when you sort of watch that defense, you see how it's constructed. And yes, it helps you have Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey. Um, That's sort of the next evolution in defensive philosophy, you know, light boxes and things like that, things that we've talked about over the years here on this show and previously on you locked on Patriots, but I think he's done a tremendous job. Um, so that was my vote there. 
for assistant coach of the year. Executive of the year, Brandon Bean, Buffalo Bills. The Stephon Diggs trade maybe was the piece to put it all together. Um, but he has done, and, it, and in a sense, it's kind of a, I don't want to say a lifetime achievement award, but it's really what he's built over the past couple of years because I think you still have to give him credit for going in on Josh Allen and believing in Josh Allen when nobody did. You know, it's easy sitting here right now in 2021 to say, yeah, man, Josh Allen, I'm a believer. It was a lot tougher to do that in, say, April of 2018 when you had people like myself saying, I don't know about this kid as a first-round pick, as an early first-round pick. Like, late first round, yeah, I get, I get it. You take a swing on the size of the athleticism in the arm. But, you know, they went in on him, and it's paid off. So, Brandon Bean, your executive of the year. Coach of the year, Kevin Stefanski, I think just a tremendous job. If you had asked me this one, and I wrote about this like five weeks ago, I would have said Brian Flores, boom, lock. You know, put it in, in Sharpie. Um, but as the Dolphins faded, you see what Stefanski has built. And I know there was a lot of talk during – you know the end or at the end of that Chiefs Browns game about changing the culture and things like that and expecting to win and things like that but it's true he's built that he's crafted that from nothing from a team that a couple of seasons ago was only 16 you know a team that last year sort of melted under the expectations of what they saw in the second half from Freddie Kitchens and rookie Baker when you hire Stefanski, when you install that offense, when you make the move for Austin Hooper, what a tremendous catch on Sunday afternoon. There were people like myself that said, look, this could be this could be very good. And they lived up to those expectations in a, in a strange year. And so Kevin Stefanski was my vote there. Most improved player of the year, it's Josh Allen. To have the season that he's had, to make the strides that he has made. Like, are there other options? Yeah, there are other options, but I think, you know, it's easy to make a case for Josh Allen as your most improved player of the year. I'm sure people will vote for others, um, but I think that's a pretty easy call to make. Next award here, Defensive Rookie of the Year. Um, I, I've seen some people talk about Jeremy Chin. I've seen some people talk about Antoine Winfield, Justin Blackman. Uh, but when push comes to shove for me, it's, it's Chase Young. It's Chase Young. His ability to get pressure, to influence what offenses have to do against you. He's a huge reason, you know, and he's a huge part of that defensive front, and that defensive front is why they made the playoffs. Made it easy for me. Offensive Rookie of the Year. I went with Justin Herbert for a reason why, which will become apparent in a second, but... Justin Herbert had a fantastic year. Stepped in perhaps earlier than people expected him to be ready, myself included. Lit it up. Showed you that he has the ability to make throws to all levels of the field, the arm, the accuracy, the athleticism. But two things really stand out to me. How he handles the pocket and how he handles the mental side of the game. Boxes that he had not checked yet coming out of Oregon, but he's checked them now as a rookie in the National Football League. And I went back and I rewatched a lot of his you know, rookie season over the past couple of days. It was tremendous. And there were mistakes, to be sure. Is there stuff to clean up? Absolutely. But I've been very impressed with Justin Herbert. I think everybody has to. He's my offensive rookie of the year. My rookie of the year is Justin Jefferson. 
And a lot of people are going to say, well, quarterback versus wide receiver, you're really going to name a wide receiver your overall rookie of the year? Yeah. With a lot of confidence behind that pick. Jefferson's numbers weren't just good for a rookie. They were good, period. Full stop. And in an offense that is not exactly slinted it all the time. We're talking about somebody that 88 catches, 1,400 yards, 7 touchdowns, averaging 15.9 yards per reception, 11.2 yards per target. That's incredible. You know, Jefferson was 15th in the league in catches. Again, not among rookies, but among the entire league. He was fourth in receptions, ninth in yards per reception. These are elite numbers for any receiver, and he's doing it as a rookie with Kirk Cousins as his quarterback, with Mike Zimmer as his head coach, on a team that didn't make the playoffs, on a team that ran a lot of 12 personnel. So it's not like they're spreading it out and he's getting, you know, cornerback three on him. He put up elite Randy Moss kind of numbers dating back to when Randy Moss was a rookie. Was Justin Herbert great? Yeah, that's why he's our offensive rookie of the year. But my overall rookie of the year is Justin Jefferson. And there might be some that come at me and say, oh, you're just doing it because you love Jefferson. Maybe. But in reality, the numbers speak for themselves. This guy was an absolute force this year. And when you're, you know, in that same sort of category in some statistics, you know, when you're ahead of Devontae Adams and Calvin Ridley, Tyree Kill, DK Metcalf, Allen Robinson. That's elite. And so Justin Jefferson, my overall rookie of the year. Next award we're going to talk about, defensive player of the year. Aaron Donald, I think it's an easy call. Uh, Jalen Ramsey could have been a good pick. You know, there are other names that you can mention here, but I think Aaron Donald is still, from a down-to-down basis, just... Absolutely incredible at what he does. Even banged up against the Packers, you can still see what they have to do against him, the penetration, the quickness. He's just playing a different game at times. Aaron Donald, my defensive player of the year. Offensive player of the year, this was a really tough one. I know a lot of people might say, oh, best quarterback, whatever, whatever. We'll see why I didn't do that in a second. A name that I was told some people are voting for, which makes a lot of sense, is Travis Kelsey. I thought he was... look. I just rattled off some of the stats for receiving yards, right? Who led the league in receiving? Stephon Diggs. Behind him, Travis Kelsey in terms of receiving yardage. 1,416 yards as a tight end in just 15 games. 145 targets, 105 catches, 13.5 yards per reception, 11 touchdowns, 79 first downs. That's Travis Kelsey. So if you've turned in a ballot with Travis Kelsey's name on it as Offensive Player of the Year, I get it. But my vote was to the guy that was first in that category, and that's Stephon Diggs. 166 targets. Led the league. 127 receptions. Led the league. 1,535 yards receiving. Led the league. Eight touchdowns. 12.1 yards per reception. 
And if you want to talk about Josh Allen's improvement this year and make him your comeback player of the year, I think, in a way, you have to give a nod to Stephon Diggs and what he has meant to that team. So, my vote, Offensive Player of the Year, Stephon Diggs. He has made that offense complete, along with Josh Allen's development, of course, but a huge year for him. And finally, my MVP, and for me, it came down to Josh Allen and the guy I voted for. I voted for Aaron Rodgers. Adjusted net yards per attempt of 8.89, best in the league. 48 touchdowns, just a tremendous number, tops in the league. Just five interceptions. Overall quarterback rating of 121.5, best in the league. Overall QBR of 84.4, best in the league. 70.7 completion percentage, best in the league. And he's doing it while throwing the ball downfield. He had a fantastic year. The reason why I took him over Allen, partly because I look at what Allen was able to do in terms of most improved player of the year. But I think, look, look at how well he performed this year versus last year in terms of Aaron Rodgers with roughly the same team around him. Now, maybe that's a case for him to be most improved player of the year. I don't know. But I look at what Aaron Rodgers did this year. I think you take him off that roster. They don't win eight games. Now, with Josh Allen, are they a playoff team? Maybe not, but I think that's still a team that's competitive because of the defense and everything else. My vote was Aaron Rodgers. If you voted Josh Allen, I get it. If you voted Mahomes, Brady, I I mean, any number of names or Stephon Diggs, I would get any of those names. But for me, that was my ballot, Aaron Rodgers. And so there you go. So that will do it for today. I will be back later this week. We'll talk about, you know, some playoff stuff. We'll have some playoff previews. I'll also start talking about some senior bowl stuff because, well, I won't be there this year. Um, I will be there virtually. I have virtual credentials. So I will still be credentialed for the senior bowl for, let's see, 16, 17, 18, 19. My sixth year, which is kind of cool. Um, but I will be doing it virtually this year. Um, but I will have access to the film and all that good stuff. So in terms of what to expect during Senior Bowl week, you'll probably get, if not every day, every other day, a show talking about what I'm seeing on film. Um, again, it won't have the benefit of being there and seeing it live, but film's good too. Um, but I'll start working in some Senior Bowl stuff I'm working on over for Touchdown Wire, some players to watch for the Senior Bowl. Wish I could be down there. Sometimes life throws you a curveball, and you try to hit it to the opposite field. At least that's what my coaches taught me. By coaches, I mean my dad. Until then, friends, stay safe. Check in on your neighbors. Wash those hands. And when you do, sit along and bless those Patriots' reigns. Down and forth.